Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning, everyone. Um, let's start out with a bit of reality, though. I mean, like by this time at my house, we're still trying to wrangle kids, get them on the couch, sitting still, doing their coloring sheets. So some of you, this might be a good morning. Uh, perhaps for some of you, it may not be that great of a morning or that great of a day. Or if we're honest about where we're at in this whole thing, not that great of a week. Um, regardless, we want you to know that we love you and we're glad to be able to, at least in some way, although it's not right in, in totality, we look forward to a time where we'll be able to join again together. So we enjoy being around the Word. It is a gift of grace to be able to hear the Word preached. It's a gift of grace to be able to open a Bible and to understand, uh, to have it in our own language. I think a lot of these things we just take for granted that in the midst of a time where so many things stink, it's just not fun, um, we have wonderful gifts of grace and God still feeds His people. Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians uh, together. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I'm going to spend my main time really today just in 15 through 19, and 20 through 23 we'll come back to next week. But let's go ahead and read today, 15 through 23, and we'll pray. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only on this, in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of of him who fills all in all. Let's pray together. Holy Trinity, we worship you today. God, you are God alone. Father, you are holy and righteous, sovereign over all things. Lord Jesus, you sit at the right hand of the Father now. You are above all things and you're the head over all things. And Lord, you are our King the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts is something that we cannot fathom and comprehend, but we rejoice and we worship you. We come to you praying that you might do the work in our hearts that needs to be done, that we would be joyful and that we would learn to do the will of the Father as we are here pilgrims traveling. We want to obey, Lord. We want to do your will, but we ask for your help. We ask that you provide us with every need that we have and that you provide it through Jesus Christ. That you would give us every resource that we need to be supplied. That we would have grace to do all the things that you have for us to do today. Lord, would you feed us with your holy word. We are up to our necks in deep waters, uncertainty, sorrow, fear. We ask that you would be the rock under our feet that we would be able to stand on 
in the midst of this world of muck and mire. Give us grace, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you got black bears, and you got skunks, and you got mice, uh, dragonflies, and wax moths, and hive beetles. You got varroa mites, and nozema, and fowl brood, both American fowl brood and European fowl brood. In the introductory class that I took for beekeeping, uh, one of the scariest modules that they talk you through is all the pests and all the problems, all the enemies of a honey beehive. Um, but you know, and so bears and moths and mice can be terrible pests if they get into your bees. But worse and uh, far more pervasive and long-lasting in trouble are the little tiny guys, especially the varroa mites. Um, they're, they're very small. They're very difficult to see, and they can carry tons and tons of diseases into your bees. And these poor guys, the, the, the bees, they have these little varroa mites. You can't even see them. They are parasites, and they just grab onto them. And just like a mosquito, they can inject you know, stuff that they've carried from something else, and it just destroys a hive pretty badly. Again, I, I remember when I first started into this, this whole beekeeping uh, attempt, and a thing I'm enjoying so far, a couple of the first months, I kept hearing this sounding board over and over again, this drumbeat that you have to be careful of all these problems that could potentially get your honeybees and kill them. Uh, at our monthly beekeepers guild meeting, yes, I know a few of you are chuckling. That's fine, but you need to respect the bees. Uh, at, the, at our meeting, a state inspector came, and he uh, told us all about the potential bee diseases that he's seeing all over Virginia, even into North Carolina, and the stuff that's all going on. And I mean, it is like doom and gloom. And maybe you've kind of been in one of these classes, maybe for something a little bit different, like uh, maybe at work, uh, you have presentations on like bloodborne pathogens and being careful and how to treat the whole situation, or maybe the dangers of hazardous materials in the workplace. And if you're anything like me, like by the end of the presentation, you're thinking, oh my goodness. There is no hope for bees at all. They're all going to die. No humans can go to work anymore. And I mean, it is all doom and gloom. The world is falling apart when they do these presentations. And this type of thing uh, on all the dangers and disease of mites, you know, happened several times in my introduction to, to beekeeping. And I can remember one night as I left a meeting like this, I'm thinking to myself, man, there is no way I can properly keep these bees healthy, let alone alive. Like, how in the world can I, I might as well just give up right now. And in this whole pursuit, as, as I've been learning about honeybees, it is amazing and astounding all the different things that they do, from collecting all the things to making the right types of bees, to making the right types of substances, to help the queen, to help the brood. They're amazing creatures. And I'm thinking about these bees, and I'm thinking about how to manage them well, how to help them, uh, how to have dominion over these bees. And I've come to realize that keeping bees and any agricultural livestock really is kind of like a small picture of what we see uh, that we are called to do at creation, to have dominion over the fish and over the birds and over every moving thing upon the earth. And then later he even tells them to keep the garden, to till it and to keep the Garden of Eden. So I'm thinking in this vein, but as I'm thinking this, I'm... I'm thinking about Adam when he is walking with God and talking with God, you know, each day. And I'm thinking, if I were Adam, I, I, I wonder what I would say to God, what kind of things I'd talk about. And, I mean, 
obviously, you are talking to the God of the universe. You get to know him and walk with him. It would be wonderful to, to find out about him and to know him better. I mean, I'd probably talk to him about the beautiful wife that he gave to me and the, the enjoyment that is. And I'd probably talk about our long walks and enjoying the exercise and seeing new things. But let's be real for a minute. Real. God gave Adam an enormous task, you know, to, to in this creation mandate. I mean, they're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And of course, Adam and Eve have a great time trying to do that. And then you've got, you know, you're supposed to subdue the earth. And then you're supposed to have dominion over the fish and the birds and, uh, you know, everything that moves on the earth. And they're supposed to, to work and keep the Garden of Eden. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I, I'm pretty sure Adam was like, okay, can you get me some help here? Like, I have got so many issues. Like, I, I've already named all the reptiles, but like, I feel like now I'm out of names. And I still have all the other ones to talk about and to give them names. You know, and I got these fruit trees that keep growing like crazy. Like, is it okay to clip them? Or like, how do I manage this? And I keep having these, these dumb birds around the, around the garden who don't even fly, but they leave eggs laying all over the place. Like, how do I do a better job of having dominion over all these things that you gave me responsibility for? So... I'm thinking in these conversations that he's having with God that he's getting some divine help. Like God is actually teaching him and, and making sure that he understands how to have dominion. Now back to the present day situation where we're at. That's what I need for my bees. I, I need some supernatural help. Uh, again, I go back to that bee meeting. I'm, I'm walking out where it's all doom and gloom that I've heard about. And I'm thinking, oh man, all my bees are definitely going to die within like the first two weeks that I get these things. You know, they have no hope whatsoever. And I come to this conclusion that I think the best thing that I could ever do for my honeybees is pray for them. Like, I can do all kinds of other, and I'm not kidding here. Like, I realize that God made these creatures. I'm like, man, maybe if I just pray harder and do my best to all the other things, it's got to be better if God looks over these bees than what that I do. I mean, I'll still do my varroa mite treatments and remove the hive beetles and all that stuff. But I'm convinced that if God will watch over these bees, it'll be far better than if I'm just responsible alone for them. So in the last month or so since I've gotten these bees, I've learned to pray for my bees on a weekly basis. Um, you know, I, I, I pray for each of them by name. You know, and I, I follow up with them and I kind of understand the little, see if there's any answered B prayer requests. You know, it's been a very edifying experience. Um, no, but for real, I, I do pray for my bees. I do think about this, you know, that uh, I pray that they would uh, do good work, that they would be healthy. You know, Lord, please help my bees. Would you do the work to help them? But this is not the way that I pray for you. I, you know, Lord, help the bees. Lord, help the Christians at Cornerstone. No, not at all. I, I do not pray for you that way. Bees, as, as far as I know, do not have a soul. They do not have a conscience. They are not made in the image of God. And they certainly are not the recipients of every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. You, human image bearer are categorically different from the rest of creation. But one more than that, you, Christian, the one who is a saint and has trusted in Christ, 
you are different from the rest of your image-bearing brothers and sisters. In Ephesians 1, 15-19, Paul is praying for his Christian brothers and sisters. And it ain't no prayer for the bees. He is thoroughly concerned about their state. It's thoroughly grounded in the sovereignty of God and his action to redeem his people from their sin. Let's walk through these verses so that we can begin to understand why Paul is praying and learn how we ought to pray. Verse 15, Paul says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul begins kind of with a curious phrase right at the beginning that points to two directions. Well, to be honest, he kind of does point back, but then he's connected to real people as he moves forward. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks. He basically says, for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks. But we ask, for what reason, Paul? Like You've, you've told us that, but what's the referent here? This is the question of why are you praying? For this reason, I don't cease to give thanks. Why then? Why are you giving thanks, Paul? And it's easy for you and me, as we do this, we're like, uh, what is he pointing to? To think that the next phrase actually fills that in, that that's the reason. Like, Paul could be saying that the reason he's giving thanks for them is because he had heard of their faith in Christ and love for all the saints. But this doesn't make sense of both the flow of what Paul has been writing so far or the grammar. And I'll explain in a minute here. Paul has just finished up the eulogy, that, that benediction, that big praise to God in verses 3 all the way through 14. He's just finished up this huge benediction of praise to God for what he's done in his elect, redeemed, unified, treasured people. He's shown us that these spiritual blessings are given to those who are in Christ. And then come to the words, for this reason. So it really actually follows along that he said this, and now he says, for this reason, he's going to go into the next thing. That all that Paul's just told us about, uh, the blessings of the God in Christ, verses 3 through 14, are the reasoning that he would not cease to give thanks to God for them. The flow of the passage shows us that Paul is giving thanks because of what we just learned in the benediction. But it's not just the logical flow. It's also the grammar here. It doesn't work properly if we treat that second little phrase as the reasoning for why Paul's giving thanks. The phrase in verse 15, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, is a participial phrase. Now, I know that's Greek nerdy stuff. I know, just, just hold on with me for a minute because it's important. It's more like he's saying, for this reason, and then he makes like a parenthesis, Having heard of your faith in Jesus and the love for all you saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Almost like he's putting this little parenthesis here and saying, I'm talking to you guys, the ones that have evidenced yourselves to be Christians. So by adding this little phrase after he says for this reason, what he's doing is actually connecting these people that he has heard about their faith in Christ to the reason the people that have found it to be true that this eulogy, the benediction, all the stuff that they've learned about God blessing his people, they are the same people that these people have trusted in Christ are the ones who have received election, adoption, predestination, who are God's inheritance. So by adding this little phrase, he's not giving us a reason why he's thanking God. 
That's found again back in verse 3 through 14. Rather, is connecting all those important theological truths in 3 through 14 to real people that he has heard of their faith in Ephesus and the surrounding areas. Now, these aren't necessarily people that Paul knows. He just knows of them. He's heard of their faith. But this is an encouraging little word for us. Uh, think about this for a minute. That shows us that being in Christ isn't theoretical only. It isn't just an idea that someone would ascend to. That They would say, yeah, I can believe that to be true. Paul is saying that he is not ceasing to thank God for those who have shown that they trust Jesus and love all the saints. But now to go back to the other question, why? We need to, we need to ask this question, the why question, the reason we look to that previous section. We know who he is thanking for, but why is he thanking God for them? To answer this question, think for a minute if you're addressing maybe a, a new believer, talking to someone who's just received Christ and conversion. Like, what, how would you talk to them? In what way would you talk to them? Or what would, how would you address them? Like, like, maybe you'd say, hey, great job at becoming a Christian. You really did it. Way to go. Or maybe you're like, hey, Thank you for accepting Christ. You know, or uh, thanks for finally figuring it all out and congratulations on becoming redeemed. It's pretty awesome. It's a little bit weird, right? There's something not quite right about that. Something's not quite, quite right about that because, you know, of course we'd want to rejoice and, and be thankful for these things and celebrate, encourage a brother or sister about their conversion. But to tell a person who is chosen from before the foundation of the world, that was predestined and adopted upon no merit of their own, who has been redeemed through the death of Jesus, who, has inherited, who was inherited as God's great possession, to tell that person, great job, thank you for what you did, it is, you know, it's just really, it utterly misses the point. It's not right. It misses the point of the great action of the one who's done this for the individual. And Paul knows that. But of course, he doesn't want to just miss the opportunity to encourage the saints. So he tells them outright. He encourages them and gives credit where credit is due. The reason that Paul's not ceasing to give thanks for these Christians is found in this benediction from 3 to 14. For this reason points backwards. Paul is thanking God because God has blessed these believers with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. All that we just learned about God's sovereign control and his gracious giving, his hand of blessing in his people, and the adoption of us as his sons, all of this is reason for Paul to be thankful to God. He has a real thing in front of him, these people, to say, Lord, Thank you for that. Thank you for these dear ones that you have saved, that you have loved. It's an occasion for thanking God for what he truly has done. Now, this may seem like an awful lot of information and work and a lot of attention given over to this little phrase at the beginning of our text, but it's warranted. Uh, Paul is showing us how a Christian, a person who has been graciously chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed and inherited by God, how that person prays for other Christians. So in verses 15 through 16, he says, for this reason, I guess he's pointing back, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
Paul's first order of business in praying for these believers is to thank God for his gracious work in redemption for real people. How often do you find yourself thanking God for another brother or sister's salvation? I mean, I'd like you to really think about this. I mean, when was the last time that you thanked God for his act of election or adoption or inheriting both the Jews and the Gentiles as his treasured possession? When was the last time that you thanked God for what he has done in another believer's redemption? I have to admit that I don't think that's a normal thing that comes off of our tongue when we're thinking about thanking God. But Paul does this. And I don't know if Paul had a, you know, like a specific you know, prayer scroll journal rolled up that he carried around with him that had believers' names on it. But we're confident here that he thanks God for real Christians that he knows about their salvation. And man, this is a challenge for us and reminds us to thank God for such an awesome work of grace in our brothers and sisters. They are occasions for thanksgiving for what God has done. Let's move on, though. At the end of verse 16, after he says he does not cease to give thanks for them, we have this little phrase, remembering you in my prayers. For a minute, notice the connection here. There's not a direct one. Consider that Paul didn't thank God for a person's conversion, and then he just moves on to try to get more people converted. No, he wasn't thankful and then gone. He didn't split. No, he was thankful, and he understood that these people were believers, were disciples of Jesus Christ, and that they needed to grow. They were infants in Christ. So what does he do? He prays for them. I mean, what a rebuke to a busy generation. And and what a thing to do for the one who believes so strongly in the sovereignty of God. I mean, he's just told us that God has graciously given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's done. He did it in Jesus. What more could one expect? I mean, he's done it all, right? Paul's just given them this benediction, 3 through 14, which is all about God's spiritual blessings. But now, Paul is going to pray that these Christians would know, at their core, the extent and relevance of these blessings that God has given to them. Basically, the blessings have been given, but Paul is going to pray that the Ephesian Christians would grow in these blessings. You having every spiritual blessing in Christ doesn't mean that your sanctification is now irrelevant. Or more importantly, that somehow you can do your sanctification on your own. The spiritual blessings that have been given, Paul now prays that these disciples will grow in them. But what will he pray for? You know, is this kind of a help my bees type prayer that we talked about at the beginning? In the next verses, we find out that Paul is going to pray very specifically for these believers. In verse 17, he says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of of him. He begins here with the person. He reveals the giver, the one who can actually fulfill this prayer request. It's God. It's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. This is no small title. It's no small God who oversees maybe a certain realm, one area. 
but it is the God of King Jesus, the long-awaited for Messiah. It's his God, that one who is all-powerful and full of glory. It's like Paul is saying, hey, let me ask the most wonderful, powerful, glorious being in all the universe, the one who has made all other beings, who has an infinite wealth of riches, the one who has an infinite well himself of blessing and resource to come help you in your need. That's who he's asking. That's what he's drawing on. It's a staggering statement of confidence in the giver, in the blesser, in the one who is blessing his people. He asks this person, the father of glory, to give to these Christians the spirit of wisdom and of, and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Wow. So this comes some kind of special trance that Paul is praying for so that, you know, these Christians will finally really know God properly? You know, is this new revelation that he's asking that they might receive? Or is this new blessings that he is praying for these people? No. You'll see that the word spirit has a capital S probably if you're reading from your ESV Bible there. This isn't capitalized in the Greek New Testament, these manuscripts, but it's the translators trying to point out something very important. They are showing that there is only one spirit who could truly deliver on what Paul is asking for here. No angel or Christian or special messenger can give true wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Paul is praying that God's Holy Spirit would allow these Christians to see and understand God. That they would, that they would break through the veneer of the knowledge of God in general, the knowledge about God, and that they would know God personally. And for all of that, he says, you know, that they would receive true wisdom and that their hearts and spiritual eyes might be opened, that they would have God revealed to them. In Job 28, Job is struggling to understand why God has afflicted him. You know the story. And he goes off on this wonderful little question about true wisdom because he can't figure things out. In verse 12, he says, But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? In verse 20, he says, From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? In verse 23, he answers his own questions. He says this in verse 23, God understands, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. There is no natural man who can know this wisdom. It is hidden to him. And then in verse 28, we have the capstone on the subject. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. In other words, you're not going to know wisdom on your own, ever. You can't get to it. To know God and to fear him, as Proverbs 9 tells us, is the beginning of wisdom. Paul's not talking about new revelation or a new blessing, or again, or this holy trance that comes over them so that they will know more about God than anybody else. No, he's praying that the Holy Spirit of God would grow them to not just be natural-eyed people, 
that they would grow and that they would understand the true knowledge of God. And he makes this even clearer that it's not just head knowledge in verse 18 with a clarifying phrase. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Here is where Paul clarifies beyond all doubt that he is not just talking about knowing more stuff about God. He knows that this isn't only about intellectual growth, but about growth that happens in the heart. Now, kids and parents too, for a minute, we've got to talk about this. This is not talking about the heart that's inside my ribs, inside my chest right now, the thing that pumps blood all around my body. Paul is using this word to talk about our innermost self, our innermost being. I'm not really sure exactly where that space is, maybe in the brain overall, I'm not sure, but I, I, I guess that it's, it's, it's something much deeper than just a place, though. This is the place where your mind and your body and your emotions and your desires all come together. This is the place that is the truest you. It's the place where true trust happens. It's the most inward part of you that longs for things or that hates things or that truly worries and fears things. The heart is the place where the physical, the spiritual, and the mental aspects of a person come together. No one can get at this, and no one can change it except God himself. Paul prays that the one who has been born again by the Spirit of God, the one who is now spiritually alive, that this one would be able to see God properly, that those newborn eyes, in a sense, would be opened to the truths of who this God is, that they would be able to encounter God for who he truly is, and that they would properly see all that he has done as real and wonderful. Uh, and there's another way of talking about this or thinking about this. Often you have heard me say that it is wrong and not right, and it can be such a temptation for us to see with our natural eyes only. And the contrast to that, of course, is that we would see with eyes of faith the things that he says are true, that we would see with eyes of faith that that is true and believe that. And 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that we walk by faith, not by sight. This is what Paul is praying for here, faith. He is praying that we would have eyes of faith to see the truths about God that are, to natural eyes, fine, good, yeah, they make sense, they're, you know, they're even interesting. But he is praying that we would not see them as interesting and fine and good and passable, but rather as real, as cosmic, as supremely wonderful, to the point that God is making us love him. Because with our eyes of faith, we see that there is nothing else in the universe that compares to the worth of Christ. These are the things that he is praying for, that they would have eyes of faith. He is praying that we would see God for who he truly is. For when we see him for who he truly is, we will love him. And we will find ultimate joy in him. And we will obey him gladly. Paul prays that God would give these Christians the spirit who can truly give wisdom and reveal God to his people. That the innermost level, God would give them eyes of faith to behold him and all that he has done. At this point, he's going to delineate three things that he wants for these Christians to know. 
Uh, this isn't just a, again, he's the, the, the knowing of God, the knowledge of him isn't just some random facts. Uh, but there are things that he needs for his people to understand as they are going through this process of sanctification. And so Paul asks, uh, asks God that he would help these believers know these three things. Look at verse 18. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Now, right from the get-go, we kind of think about this and we think about, uh, we want to talk about our calling and um, our inheritance and the power that we now possess. But notice that's not what Paul says here. That those aren't the categories he's talking about. Whose calling is it? He has called you. Whose inheritance is it? It's his glorious inheritance. Whose power is it? It's his power. All attention is actually focused on the giver. It's still there. It's still praise, thanksgiving. And even as he prays for them, our eyes, spiritual eyes, should be looking to him. First, God's calling. Paul is praying that we would know that there is hope for us in the fact that God called us in salvation. In God's great work of calling a people to himself, there is immense hope for today, for tomorrow, for the uncertainty of the future. But knowing that God has called us, there is great hope. The Christian who looks around and wonders, how long, Lord, will I have to endure these trials? Or wonders, will I truly be happy forever in God? Or wonders, is my faith in Christ real? Does it really mean anything? I, I can't see the things around me playing out well. Paul's praying that Christians would grasp the depths of God's calling and therefore that they would hope and they would understand that their hope is real in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And this brings them great hope and comfort in the here and now. Second, God's inheritance. He is praying that we might be no oh sorry, that we might know just how rich God is when he calls his people to himself for his own inheritance. Last week we spent time marveling at the fact that both Jew and Gentile, sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, are God's inheritance, are his treasured possession. We marveled at our true identity that if we are God's possession, his inheritance, then all other associations, all other cultural connections, man, just seem to be chintzy compared to the eternal worth of being owned by God, by being his heritage, his people. And Paul knows that if we can properly comprehend this, if we can really understand this, that we will be fully confident in the one who holds us as his treasured possession. His, he's, he's praying that we would understand and rejoice in what God has done to make us his own. And not only that, in all the saints, that we look around and these brothers and sisters that are around us have also been bought with a price, have been redeemed, and are his possession. God will not allow his inheritance, his possession, his precious people to be lost or destroyed. And in this, there's great comfort great riches for us to consider. And then third, God's power. Now, this is a lot bigger than just this verse, but at the very least, 
consider that he is praying that we would know the greatness of God's power. That power that worked in all of our spiritual blessings in Christ, but particularly in the resurrection and enthronement of Christ. Now, we'll talk a lot more about that next week. But if this power is that he has already worked on our behalf, we have confidence that we can trust him today, that we can walk by faith, knowing that he has already secured it, knowing that he sits at the right hand of the Father, knowing that he has risen from the grave, both now as the one showing us that he has the power to raise us, but as our down payment, as our guarantee that we too will rise again. We understand this because of all that has happened in him. And that power that's already done these different things in Christ is toward us who believe. Not only will he provide, but when we remember the power of God, and believe that it is active and at work, we are able to live unto the Lord in whatever state we find ourselves in. I was considering that Paul knew this pretty well, pretty intimately. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh that he has been given. And he asks for it to be removed, right? Verse 8 through 10 says this, uh, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, he should, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Man, I mean, we can gladly accept the weakness of our fragile human bodies in 2020 because we know of the power of Christ. With the eyes of faith, we can see the power of Christ can rest upon us through our weaknesses. What a profound set of prayer requests that help us to look off of our current situation and to look to Christ, the one who has accomplished all and blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Profound prayer requests that God's Spirit would cause us to know God and all of his ways so that we might have confidence in this life as we look forward to the day when Christ returns and unites all things in heaven and on earth. Paul will elaborate on this power and, and the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the right hand of the Father. But for today, we're going to stop here. And I want us to consider this first part of Paul's prayer and what he's done. I want us to think about the way that Paul prays and really what it teaches us about our own prayers. Brothers and sisters, I fear that sometimes our prayers are too weak. They betray us in our unbelief. And we don't, I think they tell us the truth about what we think God is actually doing. We pray for one another in passing, and when we think about it, and simple prayers, and, and uh, that God would help that person or this person, kind of like my B prayers. Paul's example calls us, though, to pray more deliberately more theologically, and more passionately for one another. As we close, I just want to consider two really helpful things that Paul has done for us here. First, Paul shows us that God's sovereignty does not nullify prayer or the need for prayer. And those first words, right, for this reason, tells us something incredible about prayer in light of God's sovereign action of election, of redemption, of predestination, of making us our, his inheritance. It tells us a great deal that God's done all this stuff 
And now the first thing Paul's going to do is thank God and pray for these people. I mean, sometimes we believe that if God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing and if God is really all-sovereign, then why in the world would we pray? I mean, what does it do? God's got all this stuff. I mean, it's a totally logical conclusion, right? I mean, if you close your eyes to the rest of Scripture, yes. But if you don't, and even if you just read Paul, the biggest supporter ever of God's sovereignty in all things, Paul, if you read him, you realize that we are called to pray. You realize that prayer really matters, that it is doing something. You realize that it is sweet communion with God and relying on him and not on ourselves, not on those people that are around us. You realize that this action of prayer is a continual practice of putting off the old man and putting on the new. And that's doing something. We remember this from our study in James, chapter 5, verse 16. He says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, every one of us who knows Jesus Christ and loves him and trusts him alone, we are now declared righteous. Do you get it that that verse is about us as believers? This is not an activity of the super spiritual people. It's not the activity of the pastors at Cornerstone Bible Church. It's not just the activity of the spiritual elite. It is for all who are righteous that we would pray this way. Prayer is the working agent of every Christian, and it is powerful. So first of all, the fact here that Paul is teaching us to pray in light of the sovereignty of God is amazing. That, we, that, that the sovereignty of God should not discourage us from praying. In fact, the exact, opposite, the exact opposite, if we understand it correctly, it should spur us on to greater hope and trust that God has called us to pray. And the sovereign God hears and answers his people in his plan this way. It's amazing. The second thing, though, Paul shows us how to pray for one another. We need to pray for one another like Paul prays for his Christians, these brothers and sisters. Uh, I know I'm going to trample on some feet here and you're going to feel like I'm attacking you. I am not because I am with you in this boat. But for us to just say, lift up this person, so help this person, Lord. That's fine. But again, it's, it's kind of like the way I pray for the bees. Your brothers and sisters in Christ have experienced the new birth. They are regenerate. They actually are in Christ. And it's really easy for them to forget this truth. It's very easy for each one of us to rely on the natural eyes that we have instead of the eyes of faith. We need to pray for one another's faith. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit of revelation and wisdom and the knowledge of Him would be actively opening each other's eyes so that we might know God, that we'd know the hope of His calling and the inheritance that we are of His and the greatness of His power. We don't just need to know the facts about God. You know, I mean, we could have good discussions. We can have different people talk to us. We can have all kinds of different things give us the facts. What we need is to believe that these things are true and to trust fully in this person. We need to rely on God in our inner being, in our heart. We need him for the ongoing realities and blessings that stem from every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ in the heavenly places. If you're like me, 
just super practical now. If you're like me and you can't remember all the important and wonderful stuff that you ought to pray for each other, can I just encourage you with this? When you think of another believer, whether it's in your family, whether it's in our own community group or in our body in general, pray these things. Thank the Lord for what he has done in their redemption. It's simple. And then if I can just encourage you this, write down or print off verses 17 through 19. Have them with you, maybe in your Bible, or, or I don't know where you spend time praying for one. Maybe in your car as you come home from work. Print off these things. And in God's grace and humility, pray them for other Christians. Love them by asking these things for them. I mean, this doesn't mean that this is the only prayer that you ever pray. Obviously, there's so many other good prayers. We're even going to find one when we get to Ephesians 3. But start somewhere. Do this thing, that we would take these prayers that Paul has given to us and that we would pray them for one another. They are right-headed. They are helping us understand. That's kind of the other part of this that I'm not even touching on this morning, is that when we pray properly and theologically, not only are we doing something that's working for that person, we are also continuing to grow ourselves and learn both who God is and what he expects of his people, and how he works. And continually, we are on our own walk of faith. And so I'd encourage you, print out those two verses, or 17, 18, and 19, three verses, sorry, I can't count, and pray these for one another. The gift of God, every spiritual blessing, encourages us to pray for one another. It's not just, here's the praise, man, this is great, isn't it? Let's just be encouraged about that but rather Paul shows us that it spurs us on to actually pray, to act for one another in this way, to go before the throne that Jesus has made clear. And we know that's the only reason, that, we're not even talking about that this morning, the fact that Jesus has allowed a way and made a way in his perfect sacrifice for us to go boldly before the throne on behalf of one another. We don't just need a little bit of kind of the, the magic God dust sprinkled on us, just a little help from God here and there. No. We need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened by the Holy Spirit that we might know God better today than we did yesterday. Let's do that for one another and love God and our neighbor by doing this. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank that you've gone before, that you are the great high priest who ever intercedes for us. We thank you that you are the lamb that was slain from the foundations of earth. Lord, you have made a way for us to come boldly to speak to the Father. Lord, you've given us the gift of prayer not only for ourselves, but for one another. I pray that you would encourage us as we know these things are true, that God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places, and therefore we ought to pray for one another in these ways. Thank you, Lord, for this very helpful, so practical of a way to pray for each other. Would you teach us to pray? Would you help us in our rebellion at the center, Lord, constantly in my heart believes other things and wants to fulfill itself and doesn't love you. And so, God, I need the eyes of my heart enlightened. I need the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Lord, we thank you for the hope that is the gospel. We love you, and I pray for your people today in Cornerstone and around our city that they would be encouraged in Jesus Christ, that you would tear down sin, and that you would encourage them in righteousness in Jesus. Would you encourage their faith? Would you grow their faith today for the sake of your honor 
and glory and praise. We'll pray all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.